Today from the Global Lane, he survived the Holocaust. Now at 99, Sam Ron still works tenaciously to uncover the dark truth about missing family members in Poland. We got this resistance and we did not know why. Why wouldn't they want him to have a reunion with his cousin? It's back to the classroom for millions of Americans, with more parents opting for choice in education. Put your money where your mouth is and really begin to spend those funds in a way that you think best benefits your child. After the doctor's bad news, the unexpected blessing of cancer. Many cancer patients during, and particularly when they get past their cancer diagnosis, find a renewed sense of purpose. And 60 years after the March on Washington, uniting to make Dr. King's dream reality. The little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. 84 years ago this week, Nazi tanks rolled across the border into Poland. That invasion led to the worst war in history. Europe and the Pacific were devastated. More than 50 million people perished. Our next guest tells a story about her cousin. He was hiding out from the Nazis in his neighbor's cellar as the Nazis invaded. And his name is Holocaust survivor Sam Ron. His story is told in the new book, Jews in the Garden. It's written by his cousin, award-winning author Judy Rakowski, and she joins us now. Sam was about 15 at the time uh, when all this happened. So what did you find out about what he witnessed as the Nazis invaded his town? One, that picture he had looking out that cellar window, seeing panzer tanks rolling along and leveling, just steamrolling across the, the famed Polish cavalry was something that was seared into his mind for ever since. And Poland, as you know, fell quickly to that blitzkrieg by the Nazis. And Sam went on to live not too different of a life in his small town for a short while. But the Jewish population swelled from some 350 to 550 because a lot of people fled the big cities thinking they could find refuge in small towns. But that, that didn't happen. And I know that uh, your cousin, uh, Sam Ron, uh, is a Holocaust survivor. And he was even in the Krakow ghetto and then several Nazi concentration camps. So I can't begin to imagine what life was like for him. He was robbed of his late teen years, his early adult life, but uh, he escaped death. So how did he get through it all? People were always speaking gloom and doom. They were saying, you know, when he was in, he was in four different camps and they actually snuck into the Krakow ghetto. And his story is one of incredible resilience and optimism. And he would say that people in the camps would be saying, we're all going to die tomorrow. I heard that we're going to, this, that, or the other was going to happen. And he would walk away from them. And he said, why, if I'm going to die tomorrow, should I start dying today? So I think that's a really interesting perspective on a man that compartmentalized and he'd say, like, why worry ahead? He'll deal with it when it happens. And I, that's one of the big takeaways that's affected me. So he, he really tried to remain positive. And I, I'm sure as a Jew, he had uh, strong faith in God. Uh, and I'm sure that uh, had an effect on his attitude. So I know in Chapter 7 of your book, it's got the same name, by the way, as the book, Jews in the Garden. Who were the Jews in the Garden? 
Well, first, I should say that the, the title has two meanings because Poland was a garden for Jews for nearly a thousand years. And, you know, Jews had an incredible life there with civil rights given to them in medieval times. And there was a lot of thriving. Of course, we know that the Holocaust put an end to that. And we came upon a farm where um, there was a woman who said that our family of cousins, they were the doulas that lived, you know, a few doors down from where Sam grew up. They wound up murdered and buried in this former root cellar. And this woman of about 30 was on the outskirts of an interview about this with the man who had, you know, the righteous people that had tried to save them and harbored this family for 18 months. And she said, oh, I never knew this. She, this was her own uncle speaking. And she said, I grew up and, and kids at school teased me about the Jews in the garden. And she said, they teased me and they called me doula. So that was something that really stuck with me. And that became the title of the book. Judy, the book at times seems like a murder mystery, and I know you detail the persistent search for family members, especially Sam's precious cousin, Henna. Tell us about her, and why was it so difficult to learn of her fate? Well, that's a great question, because when I first traveled with Sam, I went to, with, I went to Poland with Sam nine times. And on our first trip in 1991, not long after communism fell, Sam had been welcomed with open arms by former neighbors and uh, people who had done business with his family. And then when after he, they, someone gave him the tip that this henna had survived, when he tried to pursue it, people shut down. And they just said, I don't know, I don't know. And they turn away, and, you know, look down and away in a, in a very evasive fashion as someone who's a career journalist that I've, I've observed the way people react. Anyway, we started, we chased all over the place trying to find this living survivor, someone he knew who he'd seen every day when he was growing up. And we got this resistance and we did not know why. Why wouldn't they want him to have a reunion with his cousin? So it turns out that the reason was that the killers were Poles or members of the underground who were off off the off the grid, shall we say, because the the underground, the partisans in Poland were actually very helpful to the Allies and and did a lot of great things. Well, let, let me was, get let, let me get into that just and uh, 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 take this approach. Uh, Poland's a NATO ally, leading the resistance to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But I know you contend the Polish government is rewriting history by hiding its involvement and the involvement of its citizens uh, with Nazi crimes during the Holocaust. So what are officials are doing to bury the truth beyond what you've experienced? Well, Poland passed a law in 2018 that made it illegal to say that Poles were complicit in any way in the Holocaust. Now, I want to be clear. Poles were not collaborators, unlike France and other countries. The, the Polish government in exile was an ally, and Poland did very, you know, was resistant to the Nazis in many, many ways. But some people did bad things. And 
there is a sense of need to have a purely positive narrative that no one did anything that wasn't pure. <laughs> and it's not that we have anything, you know, to say against Poland, but but we just did discover how relatives were murdered and it was by Poles. So those are just the facts. I'm not trying to paint anyone with a broad brush. Well, of course, there was a law passed in 2018 uh, that restricts criticism of Poles and their potential or possible role uh, in the Nazi uh, persecution there. Uh, what about that? Exactly. That's that's the problem is that the truth that we discovered is illegal to discuss. And, you know, there's a difference between trying to, you know, paint with a broad brush holes or anything. We have wonderful relationships and connections there. And I admire many, many things that are happening in Poland. But unfortunately, what we discovered about what happened to several families of our relatives was that they died at the hands of Poles during the war. And these were sort of renegade partisans. And it's an unfortunate fact that that um, is not really allowed to be discussed in Poland today. Okay, may God bring the truth to light. It's an amazing story of survival and tenacious efforts to uncover the truth. The book is Jews in the Garden. Author Judy Rakowski, thank you for being with us. May God continue to bless you and Sam uh, with many more years to share this incredible story. Thank you so much. It's back to school for millions of American students with more and more parents opting out of public schools. At least 14 states and the District of Columbia have enacted voucher programs, making school choice more affordable for parents. Well, here to explain what is happening in Arizona is Young Voices commentator Armin Sidhu. He's an American educator and writer based in Arizona and the founder and director of iCubed Learning, Inc., a nonprofit micro school. Armin, you recently wrote an article that appeared in Real Clear Education uh, that defended Arizona's empowerment scholarship accounts, the school voucher program. And that program, uh, program is now starting its second year. So please explain how ESAs work. Sure. Thank you for having me. Sure. Uh, education savings accounts are taxpayer-funded accounts that allow families to withdraw their students from a public or charter school. And in return, they're also given about 90% in the case of Arizona of the funding that would have followed that student if they had enrolled in public or charter schools. Uh, so as a country, we have not usually funded or provided public funding for homeschooling students or private school students. And Arizona's Empowerment Scholarship Account Program uh, made school choice history last year as the first program that had universal eligibility. So families for the first time when they withdraw from a public or charter school are also able to make sure that their funds, because uh, families that are homeschooling or private school families pay into this very same public school system that we all do, and they actually get to utilize those funds at their discretion. Well, why do you believe Arizona's program is working so well? So I think part of it comes from uh, what we've seen after the pandemic. The pandemic became the first time where parents really got to see up close uh, how their child's instruction was being planned. And I think we came away from that experience with the idea that online learning, although it had a lot of um, areas where it could work on, uh, it had enough to the point where parents felt confident to withdraw their students from public schools 
And a lot of the, the avenues where we see parents frustrated the most, one part of that is safety. So looking beyond just school shootings or, or events like that, but also um, things like bullying when they become chronic can really impact a student's achievement in school and their feelings towards school. Uh, so safety becomes one avenue where a lot of families are being attracted to this program in Arizona. And the other part would be instructional or curriculum. So as a, as a parent, if you disagree with the way that your public school uh, has formulated a curriculum, this ESA program became an opportunity for you not only to withdraw your student, but to also, in other words, put your money where your mouth is and really begin to spend those funds in a way that you think best benefits your child. Uh, so if you have a student that maybe is struggling in reading and you haven't seen much progress in your public school, a lot of families like to utilize these so that they prioritize the subjects and the skills uh, that their children need the most assistance with. So I think those have been the two driving factors that have made Arizona's program, which now represents about 64,000 students, uh, popular with parents. Well, one criticism about vouchers is that taxpayers pay twice for students attending public schools and then also for those using vouchers to attend private institutions. And they say only the affluent can afford them. So your thoughts on that? Yeah, so a lot of the opposition tends to focus and, and makes vouchers seem as if they're subsidies for the affluent. And I think what we really need to get away from is understanding that the options that are available to us, especially after the pandemic, uh, look far beyond the traditional school. So I like to think of micro schools as the one room schoolhouse that we used to have in this country, uh, where instruction was really developed and guided by the people that were there. So you had smaller staffs, uh, you usually had um, grade levels that were mixed. So instead of the public school monopoly system where we have uh, one grade level per teacher, which can be very expensive to maintain, uh, micro schools really customize instruction, not on the basis of, of when the kids were born or their age, but on their appropriate need. We should start to look at consolidation, closure of some, some public schools if they're not meeting the needs of their local community. So these ESA programs, even though it sounds as if we're, we're doubling, I think we need to pay attention to the long game here, which is to say, what is gonna happen to the public schools? If a public school is not able to function, it cannot attract uh, the level of enrollment needed to sustain it for taxpayers, then we need to say, what as a community does our school need to look like? Are we a community that maybe works better with micro schools? Uh, is this a community where the local public high school is the center of life, as it is in, in various rural communities? Uh, so really, that's th those are the areas where we need to push back on the opposition and, and think about the long-term benefits of this type of program. Okay, Arizona setting the example for the rest of the nation. Young Voices commentator Armin Sidhu, thanks for sharing your time and insights. We appreciate it, Armin. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Although the overall cancer death rate is in decline in the United States, the big C can devastate a person not only physically but also emotionally. So how do you cope after the doctor gives you the bad news? Well, Reverend Percy McRae is here to share some thoughts. He leads the faith-based outreach of City of Hope. Reverend Percy, uh, much attention is given to overcoming cancer physically, but we know it can also be emotionally devastating to cancer patients, their friends, their family. Uh, how do we deal with witnessing the physical decline of our loved ones? It's, it's difficult. Well, it is difficult. At the end of the day, having cancer, being told that you have cancer, working through cancer, and then supporting people with cancer is just a difficult endeavor across the board. I'm a cancer survivor myself, now going on my fifth year, and I thank God that uh, no evidence of disease at this point. Uh, but I've been through this. I've stepped through it, and I certainly have supported cancer patients 
uh, close to three decades, 18 years at the bedside as a chaplain, et cetera, et cetera. And the key dynamic to understand here is, is that we need to understand the human dynamic of, of being told that you have cancer. That is not uh, a simple task. So if you're supporting people with cancer, first and foremost, we need to be cognizant and sensitive to the fact that everyone, particularly people of faith, may have bad days. They may have tough moments that we need to be uh, prepared to to help them step through and walk through and not judge them under those circumstances. And you're in the valley with them. And so what's the biggest mistake that people make when they discover someone has cancer? The first mistake that I think that people make is, is giving a sharing experiences of other cancer patients to a cancer patient. Everyone's journey is different, unique, and we need to be mindful that what may have happened with one uh, or, or other individuals may not necessarily be the experience at all for, for that particular cancer patient. So we've got to clear the slate. We, we come in with a clear slate and we don't have anything uh, kind of in the chamber. We need to allow that uh, narrative to be unfolded before us. And then we need to step through that uniquely based upon that person's scenario. Second mistake that is made is that I think particularly as believers, we tend to dive right into the place of, well, if you only have enough faith, uh, you know, you wouldn't have cancer or you'll be healed of cancer. And uh, I've been doing this long enough, and I am also a surviving cancer patient to know that I can tell you lack of faith is not necessarily associated with being diagnosed with cancer and or having a negative uh, experience with cancer. So let's take that off the table and take that out of our repertoire and not lean into that Let's step day by day, minute by minute through the process to understand where that person is and allow the grace of God uh, to be part of any and all things that we do and say with those individuals. And you talked about the blessing of cancer, and you mentioned that you had cancer yourself. You're a cancer survivor. What's the bl unexpected blessing? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a colorectal cancer survivor. Had a third of my colon removed. You can just call me pastor, semicolon if you like at the end of the day. Uh, but the blessing, uh, and I've seen this happen many, many, many times, is that many cancer patients during and particularly when they get past their cancer diagnosis, find a renewed sense of purpose. Uh, they feel uh, compelled to give back to the community and the world at large in some meaningful way. And so, believe it or not, many people have found either a renewed sense of purpose or a purpose that was driven particularly by their experience of cancer. And so God can be glorified, edified, and the people of God can be supported and nurtured uh, by a cancer journey based upon one sense of now a committed purpose that they have found and that they believe that their cancer uh, served a purpose in their life. It changed their priorities. Uh, it renewed their relationships. And briefly, tell us about the City of Hope. City of Hope has just been recently listed as one of the top 10 best hospitals in the United States of America. We are privileged, uh, and I am privileged to be associated with this organization. And uh, we see patients from all across the world. We have facilities in California, Chicago, Phoenix, and Atlanta, Georgia, uh, patient-centered uh, and, and precision uh, medicine and care that is driven around advanced uh, uh, diagnostics and uh, one of the world leading centers with regard uh, uh, to uh, trials and new things that can be done from a cancer treatment perspective. Listed at one of the top 10 best hospitals in the United States of America by U.S. News World Report. Okay, Reverend Percy McRae, thank you for setting us straight today. We appreciate it.
bless you. Have a great day. This week marked the 60th anniversary of the Civil Rights March on Washington and Dr. Martin Luther King's historic I Have a Dream speech. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. That was Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream, all of us getting along as sisters and brothers, as Americans, one nation under God. Sixty years later, loud voices on the far left are trying to divide us by race. They want you to feel bad about this country because of slavery and other racial injustices. But what they fail to tell you is that many Americans have worked hard to make this nation a better place for all people. More than 300,000 Union soldiers died during the American Civil War to end slavery. And 100 years later, people of all races marched in the streets and demanded civil rights for all Americans. And I know because I marched with them. We Americans need to continue to stand against injustice and be compassionate advocates for widows, orphans, the downtrodden, poor, and oppressed. And we begin by uniting in a common purpose, regardless of race, ethnicity, or political persuasion. This is not a race issue, folks. It's a moral issue. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. fought for a colorblind society. And no matter your race, it's not us against them. It's only about us and where our hearts are in relationship with God, our Creator. The lesson of the March on Washington and Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech is still relevant 60 years later. Yes, work still needs to be done, but we're getting there. Believe me, things are much better in this country today than they were in the 1960s. Let's not allow Marxists or anyone in the far right or far left convince you otherwise and divide us by race. Don't fall into that trap. We have overcome the past. Now let's move forward together to create a brighter future for all Americans. And remember, God created people of many different colors and cultures. But we are all here for His purposes as one race, the human race. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, YouTube, iTunes, Rumble, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.